You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, uh, my name is uh, Jasper Ford. I had to check that. No, um, my name is Jasper Ford, and I'm the author of Shades of Grey. I'm going to read a little section here from a chapter about in the middle of the book. Uh, the chapter's called Demove, and uh, here we go. Good afternoon to you all, the head prefect began. He was greeted with a murmured, good afternoon, in return. The 3,000 or so bored voices, a low rumble in the hall. He was actually a long way away, but a large voice trumpet was suspended from the ceiling in front of him, and he spoke into that. Old man Magenta's voice was so loud, he never needed one. I'd attended six and a half thousand assemblies in my life, and according to current longevity estimates, I would probably attend 22,000 more before I was done. They were tedious after the first couple of hundred, and none but the yellows really paid any attention past a thousand. For the rest of us, assembly was just a hole in your lifetime wrapped in boredom. Whispering, dozing, prodding one another and passing notes were so utterly forbidden that they simply weren't worth the risk. So the majority of villagers used assembly as a time for silent contemplation. Fenton claimed to have learned to sleep with his eyes open, which would have been useful if it were true. I just used the time for doing mental arithmetic, refining my theories about enhanced queuing, or trying to figure out a loophole plausible enough to enable me to go into the potentially profitable spoon business. It had been tried before, but never successfully. Randolph Aubergine had attempted to market the half-square models of garden trowels, but the concept didn't pass the strict rule compliance procedures, and the idea was abandoned. Uh, this is a little little section from my book, Shades of Grey. Um, my hero, Eddie Russett, can see only red, and he's uh, describing what he can see out of, the, uh, out of the window of a train on a journey. I stared out of the window, my eyes searching for red as Ratfink stalks a squareel. It was midsummer. We were past the welcome cascade of early orchids, and it was now the time of the poppies, sorrel and pink campions. Once they were done, the snapdragons and maiden pinks would sustain us until the end of the season, and it was in this manner that we reds leapfrog through the spring and summer on a frugal diet of seasonal blooms. Mind you, the cooler weather at year's end didn't completely dull our senses, although better suited to orange and yellow eyes than ours. Autumn was quite often a rapturous explosion of delights, if the leaves lingered on the branches long enough to be reddened by a fortuitous warm spell. It was the same story for the other colours, to a greater or lesser degree. The yellows had more seasonal blooms, blues and oranges had less. Greens, as they constantly reminded us, had only two chromatic seasons, the abundant muted and the abundant vibrant. Despite our closeness, I had never told Dad that I could actually see a lot more red than I let on. The question was not whether I had the 50% needed to be chromagentsia and senior monitor, but whether I had the 70% required to become potential red prefect. I was quietly confident that I could, but I wasn't certain. Colour perception was notoriously subjective, and the very human vagaries of deceit, hyperbole and self-delusion all conspired to make pretest claims pretty much worthless. But all doubts came to naught the morning of your Ishihara. No one could cheat the colour man and the colour test. What you got was what you were forever. Your life, career and social standing decided right there and then, and all worrisome life uncertainties eradicated forever. You knew who you were, what you would do, where you would go, and what was expected of you. In return, you simply accepted your position within the colotocracy and assiduously followed the rulebook. Your life was mapped, and all in the time it takes to bake a tray of scones. Jasper Ford is the author of The Air Affair, Lost in a Good Book, The Well of Lost Plots, and Something Rotten, The Big Over Easy, The Fourth Bear, and First Among Sequels. His new book is Shades of Grey, The Road to High Saffron. Thank you for joining me, Jasper. Thank you. Jasper, this is a rather different book from your other books, which are rather different from any other books. <laughs> so I am wondering what moved you to go out beyond the boundary you'd already blown through a few books ago? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, yes, an interesting question. I know my publishers, of course, asked it many times. <laughs> um, I, I think there is, well, in, in any sort of form of uh, creative endeavor that one does, and obviously, you know, writing is a creative endeavor, you, you have to sort of step outside um, your comfort zone, to use a, to use a horrible cliche, uh, and, and start writing stuff that you wouldn't normally write. 
and and for me i suppose that would um ideally be very very serious stuff um but i don't do serious stuff so i thought well what can i do that would just be different unusual give me new writing um uh, challenges and things like that and I thought well well, really what I've been doing for the last seven books is taking characters which were already there in, in the public domain and already there in readers heads um, uh, so I should actually go and do some some writing of not you know proper noveling for a change and actually r- write my own characters with their own situations uh, and everything like that and it's like real being a grown-up <laughs> novelist um, which I've never really tried before so um, so you know I just before I was just sort of like you know playing around with people's heads and and stuff that's already there and mining the collective memory for for you know fan, you know good little little jokes and gags and stuff so I thought no let's 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 create some characters on my own and um, and see what we do with them but um, because this is a Jasper book uh, I couldn't really do that with any sort of you know straight face for too long but um, but I've always liked I mean throughout all the the Thursday books and the the nursery crime books there's always been little jabs of satire um, you know sort of sort of pointing up through the through the sort of the prose um, you know uh, and I thought well let, let's just let's just carry on with that theme and um, and take the sort of long British tradition of of satire and gags uh, and and sort of put them together and, and kind of see what uh, see what happens now this book has a very complicated I think um, <clears throat> background undertone uh, substructure superstructure when we encounter it first when we first just open this book up and read we find ourselves in a very strange place so why don't you just tell us a little bit about the world that we encounter mm. in the first few pages of this book well this is a world I think we find we find out quite soon um, that this is this is this is our world uh, but it's maybe seven eight hundred years into the future it's it's past some post catastrophic um, event um, which has receded so much into the past that no one's particularly interested um, uh, everybody is actually fairly un- incurious in the book, which is uh, interesting. Um, but um, what's happened is that um, the, the humans who who exist in this world are not like you and I, uh, you know, homo, homo sapien. I call these people Homo uh, coloribus, the uh, or coloured man. And and what this means is that um, everybody seems to have to be able to see one colour, and uh, and it's a world obsessed by visual colour. And um, not only is it commodified, but also used for health reasons and all other things. Um, but uh, depending on what colour you can see, that uh, states your your social position. So the purples who who lead who lead the the place, they're the head prefects. Um, they will be at the top of the stack, and then it will go down from there. Uh, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. Um, red are the the lowest of the sort of the the ordered. Um, sort of social strata and then below them are the greys who see no color at all um but um i mean that's very basic how it all starts but uh but it gets very much more complicated than that because we are complicated and even when you when you put on a relatively simple idea all of a sudden it it sort of just sort of carries off on its own and, and just adds itself to this endless endless layers of of complication one of the things that <clears throat> you do quite well with this book, and I think with all your books, is to, no matter how strange and absurd the situations are, no matter how bizarre the world is or how connected or disconnected it is to ours, you create really engaging characters. Mm. Even the characters that we don't particularly like mm. are engaging and fun to be around. So talk about Eddie Russert, who, Russett, who's our you know, pers- point of view, mm. and some of the other characters who who surround him, how you can make these characters who come from a world that's cl- close to incomprehensible at f- when we first read it, mm. um, to be engaging to us emotionally so we really want to follow along. Well, they, they uh, I mean, the, the, I think the point about the characters in the, in the world is, I mean, I, I think the way I look at things on a much broader, just to, you know, go away from your, your answer for the moment, um, I mean, most. Uh, I mean, all books have pretty much been written these days. I mean, every story's been told, and and I think that the the final frontier for for authors is is obviously the way in which they are they are they are told, um, and if you can tell a story where you have slightly different, um, you know, slightly different rules of social discourse, then then there is there is more drama to be gained, and and I think more interesting. Sort of drama to be gained. Um, so, so what I think what I was really doing here was was trying to create slightly different rules, 
so that um, so there is a new a new kind of drama. Um, uh, lazy drama for me is like two guys in a room, one has a gun. Okay, that that's that's lazy drama as far as I'm concerned. Now, f- for me, if I can create drama where someone um, didn't see the last rabbit, right? but is claiming that he did, and that's a major deal. Now, that's drama I can really, really, uh, I can really, really enjoy because, you know, how can you make that sort of drama work? And, and I think that's fun, and I think that's interesting. I think it's new, and I think it's fresh. Um, but for my characters, uh, and you're very kind to say that, you know, you, that they're real people. That's always what we're trying to do. Um, it is that obviously they're like us, and they want things like us, and they work to the same sort of incentives that we have. Um, and Eddie Russett, who I, who I like a great deal, is is a reluctant hero, and I think reluctant heroes are, are, are really very interesting indeed, um, because he has he has hidden depths that he doesn't know that he has, and he, he all he wants to do is he wants to just marry as well as he can. He's sort of on a half promise to this a woman called Constance, Constance Oxblood back home whose father runs a string works and you know it's a good catch for him because she's a bit higher on the social strata and that's really all he wants uh, and I think when he gets to East Carmine he's visiting there with his father and when he gets to East Carmine and he, he meets this uh, very very sort of um, strange and, and bizarrely violent grey girl called Jane um, who he falls completely in love with uh, and is just captivated by her complete lack of any well she just defies every single rule there is in the in the in this very ordered society eddie russett lives in an incredibly ordered society absolutely is done everything is done by the book quite literally done by the book so when he meets this woman who who essentially you know threatens to kill him several times and almost does on a few occasions um and totally rejects everything that not only he stands for but the whole society stands for then he realizes that here is something uh, that he should be perhaps be following um, and he doesn't really know why, uh, and I think that's kind of interesting. And and I think, you know, all of us really would like perhaps to go down the soft route, you know, and you go, well, you can have this house, but it's quite small, and you get this and that and everything, but, you know, you get your wages every single month, and that's fine. You know, and do you risk something to, to get something better and all that? Um, and, and I think that's that's why I like Eddie a lot, because he's really just sort of, he's kind of reluctant. One of the things that, that, makes this world so interesting um is of course the way the the you know the class segregation and, mm. and the this background of the of the color separation as it were yeah it, it's it's a printer's nightmare or yeah <laughs> yeah it is um yeah i mean i wanted to i mean so i mean you know social grouping is fascinating you mm-hmm. know it's everywhere and and hierarchy is everywhere i mean you know, mankind being a you know a um, a highly socialized animal does seem to require hierarchies wherever you go and it's you know right the way from global down to you know in your front room with the family and who who gets the best seat um so it, you know in front of the tv so you know that that is something you can't write out of a book and when you're when you're writing about a completely new form of society then I think a hierarchy is pretty much, you know, um, uh, as read. Uh, so I, I decided that um, to, have, to have people graded by, which, uh, what, by what colours they can see is just about as dumb as any other form of social, um, you know, uh, strata that you could possibly imagine. In fact, I, in fact, it's probably actually quite sensible compared to some of them out there, I have to say. Um, but... Uh, but it was and it was quite fun to do because once you once you start putting everybody in color coding in this sort of in this social strata way and the way that they talk to one another, it, it does come out rather sort of um, rather sort of chim- chillingly familiar. Um, and the way that people talk to one another and the and the and, b- and being a British person and and because we've sort of grivet, you know grown up with the class system as we as we still do, it's alive and well in 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 the uk um and it's very easy to see it happening all around all around me uh, and also uh, in this book so I was, I was i was kind of very keen to use it but but once you set it up it it, it suddenly becomes you know the yellows in it are, are sort of hated and reviled um you know solely because they're yellow and then they become uh, more insular because they're hated and reviled and, and before you know it yellow is a completely separate um uh, separate group of uh, individuals who do things entirely differently but for no adequately explained reason it's just they see one color and not another so there's nothing to account for it other than social uh, social pressures but this is all getting kind of kind of kind of, 
complicated and serious. It makes, makes me sound like I'm trying to be a serious writer. And I'm not. I'm trying to entertain. <laughs> well, you'll just have to use your talent for loopholery <laughs> yes. to, to uh, entertain us. Mm. Um, this book presents us with a society that is claims to be pretty much perfect and changeless. Mm. Now, um, I think that a history of dystopian and utopian fiction informs us that one man's, you know, paradise is another man's perdition. Mm. So could you talk about creating a kind of uh, a dystopia that the that we experience as dystopia, but the people within it, not all of them at least, experience mm. as dystopia? Most of them think this is just keen. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I mean, this sort of the clarion calls. I mean, interesting, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book that I think is, is very much of, of its time now, I think. Uh, and certainly the clarion calls these days are for sustainability. You know, this is very much a sort of new mantra of the, of the new millennia. Um, sustainability and um, localization. Um, you know, very, very sort of strong ideas. We want to sort of, you know, act more sort of act, think global, act local on that, which is an older saying, let's, I know, admittedly. Um, uh, and that, and I was trying to actually look at those in in this book and say, well, let's let's try and devise a system that is sustainable, you know, in some way. Um, but um, it's very interesting that when you look throughout history uh, and you and you look for all these sustainable, um, so-called um, social systems, um, somebody always ends up having to be killed. <laughs> Uh, and no matter what, you know, and, and it happens in, you know, socialist systems. Yes, well, we to protect the socialist system, we have to go and kill these people because they don't believe in our socialist system. And, and that's happened quite a lot and in the communist system and all that. And, and people do end up having to die. Um, and uh, I think in any society, uh, ultimately, you know, somebody has to end up dying uh, for the society to, 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 you know, carry on. And certainly in Western um, Western. Um, uh, society that's true also uh, although perhaps maybe less of us dying inside our uh, our nations are perhaps outside but somewhere there is always some kind of victim um, to sustain any 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 society for any form of sustainability at all so um, so I was very sort of keen to to use these sort of ideas and themes and sort of play with them in in a, in, in a way that perhaps you know people hadn't uh, hadn't attacked uh, in, in any in any sort of way or form um, but it was uh, I, I've kind of forgotten your question now <laughs> Uh, dystopias and oh, utopias. Dystopia. Yes. Dystopia. Yes. So, um, so creating a, a dystopia like this is, um, yeah. On the one hand, you have to, because of course we're looking at it. You see, if somebody uh, was reading my book and, and had come from a, the sort of society where you really couldn't do very much and you had, you know, very very sort of fixed things about fixed rules about what you could do, then they probably wouldn't look at my book and think it's, you know, perhaps it wasn't quite as sort of paranoid and nasty as as perhaps you know we would be reading it here. Um, but um, but uh, when, when you present a dystopia, it, it can't all be bad. There have there has to be sections in it that people go, oh, I, actually that's not bad. You know, everyone has to be very polite to one another, and you're not allowed to raise your voice, and you have to wear a tie, and your shoes have to be polished, and all this sort of stuff, and you have to eat together, and all this, and, and there have to be, always have to be sections of it that that you feel, yeah, well that's that's not so bad, is it? Um, and then of course it it starts to unravel a bit, and you start to realise that in fact this world is is perhaps not quite as uh, as perfect and as pleasant as it as it was, but then you ask your question that you are, you ask the question. You know th this. You present that endless that endless endless argument. You know what do you do to you know protect the wishes of the the best interests of most of the people in a society, which is um, which is me getting all serious again. But um, but there is that that aspect within the uh, within the book. When you're writing a book like this that's set in a markedly different world, one of the ways that you create plot tension is the revelations of just what the nature of that world is. And that's mm. one of the things you do very well in this book. Mm. Could you talk about just creating the the superstructure, the under the underlying world? Did you like write a Bible for it or did you describe it? Did you like is there a world history somewhere that you've written? Um Non-fiction, kind of that. No, it's it's pretty much all here in the book. Uh, the, the, this took a lot lot longer to write than a usual Thursday next book. Um, Thursday books uh, and nursery crime books take me about a hundred days to write. Usually, that's because that's how long I have to do them. I have about five five and a half months to write it, and a hundred days and five and a half months. That's quite you know heavy going. Um, this took me almost four hundred days. 
over the space of a year and a half. And I think the first draft was pretty much a kind of like a travelogue. And it was just Eddie moving around the country, um, sort of looking at things, meeting things, meeting people, talking about stuff so that we, we just got an idea of what the, the world was like. Um, and, and once that was kind of in place, then I realized where the where the actual plot lines would be going. Because um, the plot lines don't have to be very. It's really about who he marries. Actually, the whole the whole book is actually a sort of you know Jane Austen in Technicolor. I think um, <laughs> it's about him trying to find a good a decent wife. You know, uh, and and so once you start once I've, you've got the, uh, the the rules you know roughly in position, then you start thinking okay let's let's figure out the characters who they are uh, and the plotting and and how to how best. Uh, because of course, the difficulty with having a, a book like this, which is which has all these different rules and, and regulations and everything, is how best to how best to introduce it to the reader. Uh, because if you just fly in there, it can be very very confusing. So so we we begin with this very short sequence really, where where he's travelling and he he moves through this town called Vermilion and then ends up in East Carmine, because it's all told in first person. So so you do have to get quite a bit of exposition across. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much how it happened. It was just sort of sort out the world, um, then the characters, then the plots, and then put it together and then get the twists down and then just endless footling and fiddling about, which is what I generally tend to do in my books, until it sort of just sort of comes into the right shape and then give it to the publishers. One of the building blocks of this book is a man named Alfred Munsell. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about Munsell in our world and in your world. Yeah, Munsell was a uh, was it Albert or Alfred? I can't remember. Um, Munsell was an extraordinary um, chap, actually, an American um, countryman of yours. Uh, about the about the time um, he was he was alive, he was just alive at the turn of the last um, century. No century. He would have be he would have lived from sort of like eighteen fifty to nineteen thirty. He was that kind of guy. But his his major work he did was around about the time of the turn of the nineteenth century. 20th century, 1905 or whatever it was. Um, and at that time, no one had figured out a way in which to you could log colours. You know, they would say, OK, that's vermilion. And then vermilion could mean anything to anybody. Uh, and what he did with a lot of other um, people at the same time, although his system, I think, was probably the best, was he actually figured out a way of logging colours. And, uh, and you can still find them in, in Photoshop. You know, they'll say, you know, CYMK, RGB or hexadecimal. Go down there. And if you come along, come across one that's, that says uh, hue, chroma, brightness, HCB, that is Munsell. Right. Really? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Hue, chroma and brightness. Sometimes they do saturation instead of chroma. Right. But basically, or the other way around. Saturation, hue, chroma, brightness, saturation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that is that is Munsell's system. Um, the Munsell color system uh, apparently is still um, is still with us. Um, it's still, a, as far as I know, it's still a company that um, that sells this system to industry. So it is still a system that's being used. It's an extremely good one. Um, he he saw he saw color in, ingeniously as a three dimensional object, um, which is a great way of looking at color because mm-hmm. it's actually completely abstract. Color has no color. There is there's no such thing as color. It's just something that we we clothe the world in our heads. I mean, there's no such thing as red. It's, it exists only in the no, mind. No, that shirt of yours is red. What? That shirt of yours is red. Yeah, yeah I know but it, but I it know isn't it. really. It's not really. It's just, it's in your head. Now, are you colorblind? Me? No, 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 I'm not. No, no, no. no, no color has no color. Mm. It, it's, just, it's just a sensation mm-hmm. and a product of the mind and the mind alone. So the fact that Munsell went and gave, gave color at three dimensions as well, because it works in three different planes, I thought it was ingenious. Um, he, 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 the character of Munsell actually only figures in the in the book simply as a name um, that they've attached to this sort of Big Brother type character. Um, there's actually no reference anywhere to to Munsell or the work he did, um, other than the colours that I do men- mention in the text mm-hmm. are done along his line of hue, hue chroma, and uh, brightness. And we have another name that hangs over this book, very important to mm. every one of the characters on their 21st birthday, mm. the Ishihara Color Test. Yeah, the Ishihara. Um, they've probably long, long forgot it's, uh, it's actually, um, uh, I think it was a professor or a doctor, I don't know, uh, another brilliant, um, a brilliant man, Japanese man, gentleman this time, um, who, who developed that, um, the color test that I think probably everyone will know of the little dots um, on a circle, mm-hmm. and, and you're showing it, and you say it's a 54 or a 27. Um, yes, so he's he's very very big in their lives because on their uh, on the 20th year, everybody because this this is a world that is based on on the colours that you can see, um, and also because the world suddenly became much more complex. Because I thought, well, if you could see a lot of red, obviously that would place you higher 
than someone who could see very little red. Um, so even within the divisions, there will be divisions as they are in, in real life. Um, so in, on your 20th year, um, they actually do this, do this Ishihara color test so they know exactly how much of what color you can see. And then you're streamed into a whatever profession that your, um, your color perception has, uh, has uh, in store for you. One of the things that I think, <clears throat> as I was reading this book, I just thought that this society is is the apotheosis of the kind of know nothingism that we we have now. I mean, they've they perfected it to a science in terms of like what they call the leap backs. They they, mm. they don't learn things; they want to forget. Mm. Yes, um, I, I don't quite know where that idea came from or where it's going to go, but but um, but uh, I think there's. Um, there are all sorts of little sort of credos that the, the, the society work by, and one of them is uh, part we are together, which is, you know, hideous in its own right. But they take it very, very seriously. Um, and also um, the, the healthily incurious in shall prevail. Um, and I, I think what it is, it's, it's really sort of echoes of whoever set the society up, is that they, someone, someone somewhere, decided that, in fact, it was better to be incurious and it was better not to know anything. And also um, to try and maintain that, that sort of sense of no knowledge by slowly removing technology and removing knowledge in something called the defacting, um, that, that it wasn't really necessary to know all these things. And perhaps it's better not to know anything at all. So, so there's, one can infer perhaps from that um, that, that this society was, was set up by somebody, perhaps somewhere, um, to to really to try and make a sustainable uh, society um, that um, in perhaps in consequence of the something that happened all those years ago. You know, one of the things I remember seeing on some science program was about how when they were first pr putting together the dinosaur skeletons in the Crystal mm. Palace, mm. they built the iguanodon, and it had a big horn on its nose, mm. and the, all the pictures of it had this pictures of of dinosaur with its horn on its nose. And it's only now that we've realized that it, they actually put its thumb bone yeah. On, yeah. on its nose. Yeah. And and this kind of uh, mistake, building these huge things yeah. on, on tiny mistakes is a big part of your book. I think it's yeah. very interesting. Could you talk about, about how you use that kind of effect, the, the building upon somebody else's misinterpretation of the facts? Yeah. Um, I, I was trying to I was trying to avoid that too much I must say because because I think that books that are set in the future um, can rely sometimes a little too much on misinterpretations and it becomes perhaps like a just sort of running gag so I was kind of avoiding that a bit um, but of course it, it would be impossible to to avoid really in a book set in the future so yes there are these sort of devices that have have come down um, from the from the past. And and they're not sure what m many of them do. Um, a lot of the technology is is banned, um, so you really can't. You're not really allowed to own it. But uh, but b being a color based uh, society, they do mine the rubbish that we left behind for scraps of color, and that is how they actually get the um, the synthetic hues that everyone can see. Because in this world, you maybe you can only see red, but you can see a synthetic green, uh, and that's of huge value in a sort of commodifying of color kind of way. So everybody spends most of their time trying to uh, trying to earn enough extra merits to be able to have synthetic color around their house. Um, but uh, no, I mean, every now and again, there are some things which, which yeah, which appear from the past. Uh, there's a, a, a the Risk board game, which mm -hmm. I, I quite like. Um, and and I for some reason that wasn't destroyed. All the all the all the maps were pretty much destroyed, but this one wasn't wasn't on the list. Um, and no one quite knows why. But it's it's the only view they have of the world, um, and they can see from the the board that in fact it was color coded even then. So they're not quite sure how to interpret it. But they think um, they think the United States was all yellow, you know, and Europe was blue. Now, <laughs> one of the things that that uh, I I really liked about this book was that, I mean, and, and this is, I think, something that's universal when people are writing about dystopian fiction and utopian fiction, mm. is utopias and dystopias t tend to be kind of grungy and gritty, mm. and, and, you know, they're never very clean. Mm. Yeah, what? well, I mean, I, I'm always trying to take the less well-trodden path, and uh, and I thought, uh, and certainly from a very sort of British point of view, um, is that I, I like the idea of everyone being almost painfully polite. 
And and I think I'm also sort of working towards um, the sort of drama where you want to ask something, some, you want to ask somebody something, right? And it's really important that you do, but you can't do it because it'd be very impolite to do so. You know, it'd be frightfully rude to do so. Um, and and if and if you can, I just like the idea of creating that that kind of um, set of circumstances where 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 actually being impolite becomes a, a social difficulty and actually a dramatic you know, a really good sort of way of dealing with drama. Um, but I also like the idea of, because uh, the British, uh, I mean, we are a little bit too polite, I think, sometimes for our own good. Um, I like the idea that the end of the world sort of ends with us being, you know, frightfully polite and sort of dying. We all die off because we can't be, it'd be so rude to say something, you know, oh, look, there's an alien arriving, you know, it's going to put us all to death. Should we do something? No, it'd be frightfully rude. I mean, after all, they are visitors, you know. So it was that kind of, it was that kind of feeling that I thought, well, let's let's have a world that is so ridiculously, painfully, painfully polite that it's almost like it's almost going to go extinct but only because somebody isn't isn't willing to, to question anything because it would just be too rude and against the rules and you mustn't go against the rules uh, another aspect of utopia is what i would call cheaptopia mm. <laughs> that, that cheaptopia i've never heard of that uh, well, that's because I, I just made it up oh right okay. <laughs> yeah is uh that you know Everything seems kind of cheap and cheesy as you, it's the easiest um, way to do stuff. Mm. Every, the, your, your perfect world or in, utterly imperfect world, depending on which side of the, the viewing fence you're on, mm. is, is, seems to be like made out of like dime store stuff. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know really. I, mean, I, think, I think the world they find themselves is because there's, there's, there has been this sort of uh, – reuse and uh, nothing is ever wasted in this world and and that seems to be something that they've taken to a it's as though you know 600 years ago someone said you know it'd be a good idea if we didn't waste anything and then someone's taking it right that's how we're going to run this society and now in 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 eddie's world like nothing is wasted everything is reused even the citizens uh you know rather than sort of burying them they'll actually be uh, be used um you know to uh to to do whatever but um uh everything is reused so so there is a certain sort of shabby air to it um because it's very hard to you know continuously make new things um and clearly this society doesn't have the doesn't have the manufacturing facilities to actually uh, to handle that so so we do have this ridiculous sense of everything being uh, being reused endlessly and recycled endlessly now you have a lot of fun in this book it's very very funny mm. Even when you're making some really serious points, it happens at the same time. You you'll give us this kind of uh, uh, bifurcated view where you're telling a great joke, hmm. and the language is very funny, and we're laughing. But what's being talked about and discussed is is actually really, if from our perception, really quite painful and hmm. and somewhat unpleasant. Hmm. Could you talk about like combining this kind of uh, a sense of satiric sense of humor mm. with a really, really dark uh, mm. worldview. Well, yeah, I mean, I think most of it is is because it's stuff that we find distasteful now, right? And I've tried to just touch on the kind of ooh factor, um, really, because really to sort of kind of say that okay, we find this distasteful now, but in the future, in five six hundred years, you know, it'll be just standard procedure. You know, um, you know this whole. I mean, uh, the way. If, if, and you just, just for instance. I mean, not in my book, but just, just you know, in the sort of worldview. Um, the um, uh, animal rights, for their instance, over the last you know sixty, seventy years, have moved you know a hugely uh, step forward. You know, we haven't really arrived. You know, uh, at any really sort of interesting point yet. But um, you can see the direction it's going. And if you were to extrapolate this over another three or four hundred years, you could see that we wouldn't be eating animals at all. Now, and the people could be looking back at, you know, us in the 20th century and go, do you know that they used to eat sheep? And you're going, you're kidding me. And you go, yeah, they used to eat sheep in those days. It was extraordinary. And, it, and it's that kind of way, you know. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, society's morals change with like fads, like the fashions we wear. And I think that was why I was trying to inject these these very, very different sort of moral code. And it, it, it yeah, sure, it looks a bit creepy to us. Uh, and the comedy is there with it. Um, just really to say, 
this is totally normal for these people, you know. And these are all sort of things that we have now and we regard it as a bit sort of, you know, a bit icky and a bit creepy. But we're sort of going there. I mean, one of the obvious ones I can think of is um, uh, assisted suicide. I don't know what it's like like here in, in the States, but assisted su- suicide in Europe is, is becoming uh, easier um, to do and easier to deal with for the public, and it's becoming socially acceptable. Um, and uh, in another 30 years, it will be very socially acceptable. Um, and But um, when, when, you know, if you have to deal with this very, 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 very difficult problem, very personal problem, um, that there is a there is a kind of list of because uh, in my book, sorry, and the reason I'm saying this is is in my book, um, you, you really only sort of die from the mildew, and when you do, you're taken off into the green room where essentially you are sort of you know euthanized. Um, uh, and I thought, well, you know, in thirty or forty years' time in, in Europe or wherever, we we would have a list of of, of um, fatal illnesses, terminal illnesses, of which would allow you to to you know uh, assisted suicide. Um, but I thought, what what if you had a list, right? And that list then became became actually the list by which you had to be um, euthanized, and and you, the whole thing would like flip from being something which is uh, of a moral code of, of of very very high, you know, extremely humane, to being very very inhumane. But the switch would be almost unnoticeable, perhaps, when it happened. And I and I think you know that's just an example. But I think that's 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 what happens you know as as one as one's society sort of moves through time is that all these all these things change and i and i think i was writing things in the book which um which are not acceptable now but in the future and this is seven or eight hundred years in the future it's very much de rigueur yeah and you were mentioning food one of the things that i think is also true of many dystopias is that the food is really gross Mm. (laughs) and uh yeah you do a good job of that here. I, I don't think I'm ever going to forget bone meal sponge cake. No, <laughs> no. I think that's actually they don't generally eat that. I think this is this character Dorian who who is trying to you know find different ways of of making uh, making food. Um, I think he's an exceptionally bad cook actually. But it was just I just thought I'd put it in there and see if he likes it. But it's, he always gives it to Eddie to eat, and Eddie always says it's horrible. But there's, there's a certain degree of I can't. I mean, it's about chefs, really. I mean, chefs are great, and people who love food are brilliant. Because um, even if they've only got like sort of eight ingredients, they'll 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 somehow do something else and go. How is this? Is this really good? And you go, well, not really. Go, damn. Well, I'll try something else. You know, and that's kind of what chefs are like. And I I, I don't know. I just like the idea, and it's silly. You know. Now, uh, you have kind of the various color versions of things, and, and so talk about. Uh, drugs as colors yeah well it, it's trying to make a world which is obsessed by visual color and and there is i think there is no part of my my character's lives which is not somehow touched by uh, by color it affects everything um your health your your death where you are um who you marry everything where you are the job you do absolutely everything and i thought well you know let's tr- just try and try and get um health um so so in this world there's no drugs um, if you want to be cured of something, you're simply shown the correct color. And uh, for whatever you have, you know, if it's tuberculosis, it'd be a sort of light mauve. And you'd have a sort of viewing of it for a specific amount of time. And and you would go away cured. Um, and I quite like this. But, of course, the, 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 the addendum of that, because of the, the sort of law of unexpected consequences, is that um, there must be some sort of color that would, you know, increase the heart rate and maybe make you see sort of uh, hallucinogenic sort of qualities. Um, and there is this lime which is the sort of the, the the soma, if you like, in my my book. And lime is just a gentle gentle intoxicant. That's because there's no there's no there's no alcohol or anything in this world. No no one has any 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 sort of um, uh, idea of what alcohol will do. But they do have lime, and uh, and after a hard day's work, you might want to go and just sort of look at a bit of lime and feel a bit sort of happy and everything. Um, but um, but lime can lead on to Lincoln, which is a very very strong green sort of um, psychotropic color that can do terrible things to your cortex and you'd really want to avoid it badly. In fact, it's, it's a nasty piece of work, like Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, silly stuff. It's you know? very good, silly yeah. stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things that's interesting in this is that uh, they're afraid of night. And I was thinking of the classic story uh, by Isaac Asimov, Nightfall. Mm. Oh, I don't know that one. What oh, happens? Is well, everyone frightened of the night? Uh, well, it's set on a 
world that's surrounded by so many stars that it's never dark except once every 800 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. years. Yeah. And, and there, was, there was a movie quite recently oh, like that, wasn't there? Oh, a terrible, terrible, bad movie. I can't remember we, what it was. We, it, I think it might have been called Nightfall, but you... Yeah, I, yeah. I, it's, it's, a love, it's a great idea, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it was, it was, I, I thought that um, in any society there have to be things that, that, that are there to keep you a bit frightened because clearly a, a frightened... Um, a frightened society is a compliant one. Um, so, so I just thought I'd throw in a few, you know, things to be frightened of. One of them is swans being attacked by a swan. Um, another one is um, being hit, struck by lightning. Um, and the other one was the night. Uh, and of course, it's a, it, if you can keep people frightened of the night, then you can keep them in their houses. And there's this wonderful way of controlling people. And uh, the, the, my, my characters, I said earlier, I called them Homo coloribus. Um, there is actually a monkey called a coloribus monkey, I think. Colored monkey, I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, they can, you can only see one color, but also you have uh, fantastically bad night vision. And as soon as the dusk comes on, um, you will stop seeing anything at all. Um, I, I don't, I don't have, um, I don't suffer from night blindness, but my grandfather did apparently. And uh, as soon as, uh, apparently, as soon as there was any form of uh, like dusk, couldn't see a thing. Um, and this happens to everybody. And all the all the villages are about thirty five miles apart, so you wouldn't want to get caught out after night, and it just keeps everybody in control. And speaking of things, y- you mentioned swans. Mm. Now, I I love the idea of the swans in this book. They're this kind of like uh, this uh, uh, an urban legend of the future because mm. we don't actually see any swans, do we? I don't think so. Mm, I don't think so. Well, that's the thing about yeah. fears, isn't it? You don't yeah. generally see them. They're a bit sort of intangible. Um, yeah, there's several different types of swans, and there's just like a normal small swan, and then there's like a hunter-killer swan, which is about wingspan, about 10 feet. And then there's another one called the, um, I'm trying to remember now, it's called the uh, uh, Cygnus uh, giganticus carnivorum, right, which is a giant swan, and it has a wingspan of about 40 feet, and is known as the Whispering Death. And anyone who vanishes um, is, is, is often suspected to have been taken by this giant swan. Um, and they're, they're seen every now and again, uh, wheeling up above, you know, thousands of feet in the air, and uh, and everyone keeps a good lookout for for them. But uh, no, I, I quite like the idea of swan swan attack because my my mum always used to say to me, "Oh, don't go near a swan, break your arm," you know. But until two days ago, when I was giving a talk in uh, Detroit and I met someone who had had his arm broken by a swan, I mean, how about that? Because um, I often ask people, you know, at talks, you know, anyone here had their arm broken by a swan, and everyone, you know, laughs and shakes their heads. No, he actually had his arm broken by a swan, which makes me wonder whether all the other lies our parents told us actually might be true after all. Mm. You know, which is slightly worrying. But like, there is a troll up the chimney, you know, that will get, well, that will come down and eat me if I don't, you know, eat my greens or something. You know, it's rather worrying. Well, I we were in uh, Irvine Park when my son was about three years old, and mm. he was chased by a swan. Yeah, and he was terrified. Yeah, and not not to be not to be trifled with. Yeah, these, they these are a bit birds. frightening. Yeah, a bit frightening. Uh, I have to congratulate you, too, on ball lightning. Mm. There is nothing more exciting to me than ball lightning. Mm. When I was about 12 years old, I encountered <sighs> Willie Lay on Earth and in the sky. You have seen ball lightning? No, I've never seen it. Oh. No, 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 no. I wish I had, but oh, I, yeah. I encountered it in literature. Right, right, right. Willie right. Lay wrote about it, and mm. I've been interested in it ever since. Mm. What brought ball lightning into this book and into your life? Um, have you seen it? No, I, I've met two people who claim to have seen a phenomena which we describe as bull lightning. Uh, whether it was or not, don't know. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by it. I, I think it's uh, one of those extraordinary um, sort of things that it sounds like it does exist, but but it's obviously so rare that um, that no one really knows. If it were, if it, if if more people knew about it, I think there'd probably be more reported sightings. Uh, but every now and again, it's like a spontaneous human combustion, you know. I mean, that's pretty much proven that it actually exists now. But, um, you know, for many years, it was it was sort of, well, does it happen, does it not? Um, I, I kind of like like the idea of ball lightning. It's it certainly, um, it, it, it's it's important in the book because they, they do say that there, there is, a, there is a, a, a disturbance somewhere downstream. And it's as regular as clockwork. You can set your calendar by them every 31 days, I think. They get this ball lightning sort of um, little plasma balls that start drifting over um, and that's important for things that happen in the in the later books um, uh, personally ball lightning I mean I'm, I'm fascinated by it and I remember t- uh, speaking to someone the other the other day it must have been a, a couple of months back actually and and he was of the theory right that it's actually a dimensional thing 
right? Mm. Um, And and obviously this is, you know, completely unproven, but it was a nice idea and I kind of like it because it's it's energy that suddenly appears and then vanishes uh, and that that can't happen. Uh, But if it's passing from one dimension through, through our dimension to another or back into its own dimension, then that might kind of explain how it can suddenly appear and not. Uh, And if that's a hard one to figure out, then... uh, um, uh, I, I like the idea of uh, if you if you're a flatlander, and I don't know whether you've read the book Flatland because uh, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. a bit of flatland in this book as well. I'm, I'm very keen on flatland. Um, if you're a flatlander, um, you would see a sphere as a circle, and it would get bigger and bigger this circle, and then it would get smaller and smaller. And that was that would be how you as a flatland flatlander would see a three dimensional object, right? You could only see a small part of it at one time. Um, and that's that's quite interesting, um, especially when you consider that, of course, we only see time as a very small section. So we're in a three dimension and you look at time as a fourth dimension. And of course, we only see it as a very small section at one go as it moves through us. You know, it's actually there and it should be able to see it all in one go. But we can't because we're in three dimensions. And that was kind of interesting. And I thought, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense of the whole bull lightning thing is that if it existed as something very much, very much bigger, um, but we're actually just seeing a little swathe of it, and it just pops through our, our dimension and disappears again because it shouldn't really exist. You know. But anyway, we're getting off getting off subject. About oh it, no, no, I love this stuff. Yeah. I, I'm a I'm a confirmed Fordian. Oh, good. So so uh, mm. I. I we could talk about ball lightning oh, for yeah. far too long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things that is a hallmark of your books, and I think also uh, which makes you a natural writer of dystopias is mm. it's because it's part of dystopias is a absurdity. Mm. I mean, your your society in this book is quite seems quite absurd to us, but it also points out the ways in which our own society is quite absurd. Could you talk about that kind of uh, mirror reflection of absurdity that that mm. uh, is I think a a real keystone to writing the dystopian fiction yeah um i'm trying to think of some good examples yeah i think it goes it goes back slightly to what i was saying earlier about um uh, of you know social morals being very much you know the fashions that we wear um uh you know th- um, you know fashions change and morals change and we do things perhaps we give up do, do we give up things and we take things on and everything uh, yeah, I mean, I think they look back on, on the previous, although they're not terribly interested in us, um, and they do they do have some sort of questions about what what we used to do. I mean, for instance, they're they're very very amused. All the dates in, um, and this has interested me for a while actually, but all all the dates in in Eddie's world always begin with a double zero prefix, right? Um, and we don't do that, do we? We call our this year is twenty ten. Right mm-hmm. now, why don't we call it zero zero two zero one zero? Now, wouldn't that just make sense that we were looking forward, that this was actually not, you know, the now <laughs> the end? <laughs> it's not the end, you know. It's not the now, but it's just one small part of many, many years to come. And and I was kind of thinking, well, if you just add, if everyone just added the zero zero to zero zero to the beginning of every date, wouldn't that instill a, a certain sense of responsibility over those who are to come after us do you know what i mean it's it's that kind of small little little sort of little ideas that i like putting in and and my characters make comment on that you know why why didn't they add what because they've seen dates obviously on bits of paper and stuff like that and they say why why did they not add it why was there not a prefix to the to the numbers i mean did they know it was the last year what what were they what were they thinking of it seemed very strange but uh, I'm trying to think of some more examples. Do you have some examples that I can talk about? It answer your question. Uh, um, well, I mean, I guess there's the uh, whole uh, the apocryphal people. Yeah. Um, yeah and now that's something. There are people. We have people nowadays that we don't see and mm. do see. Talk talk about the apocryphal people because they're a perfect example of of, yeah. the, of the absurdity of this of our world and of yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, in 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 this the shades of gray world that there are that because we have the rules that have to be obeyed these very very strict rules cannot be changed not at all um, and anything that doesn't fit in with the rules has to be dealt with in some 
in some way, some sort of external way. And uh, and, and there are these people, uh, there is this particular man who lives in East Kalmai in this village, um, who who do, who essentially does not exist. He is called the apocryphal man. No one knows his name, nothing. And And because the rules state that you have to ignore him, then everybody just does ignore him. And this poor bloke um, uh, has been living for years and years and years. Um, everyone just simply ignores him. And he, and he wanders around, you know, half naked, you know, in a world of complete nutter. Everyone's wearing, you know, ties and, you know, neatly brushed hair and shiny shoes and everything. And he's this complete sort of nowhere, no, no man character who, who comes into it. Um, and everyone has to ignore him. And, and it's never considered what he does if he if 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 a if a if an if an ordinary um citizen were to do what he did it would be awful and taboo and terrible and you know nakedness in public and it's just frightful and you're like and you know hasn't his hair is like sticking straight up um but because he's apocryphal and you have to ignore him it doesn't matter and you just he is simply ignored uh, and even if you were to actually say talk about him um you would find yourself uh, hastily hastily demerited um, but uh, yes, I mean we have people in our world that we ignore. Um, you know, it's entire nations sometimes. You know, millions of people. Um, it's a it's a curious curious thing. But I like the idea of having having a a human who is actually there, very much in plain sight, and you ha- you are compelled to ignore him at your at your peril. Now, um, I don't know about you, but to my mind, I- I'm going to put slug racing. Mm. In the in firmly in the world of the absurd. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no not really. Um, yeah, you see, I mean, this is, this goes back to what I was saying about, um, you know, what's what's. I mean, they could look back at us and say, you know, what what they used to they used to cut people open to do operations. Uh, were they mad? Did these people survive? What what were we thinking of? You know, and. I guess like trepanation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we look back at that sort of stuff and leeches. You know, we think leeches. What were they? What were they thinking of? That's completely insane. How could that do any good at all? You know, I mean, even washing your hands in medical profession. Still, you know, still today, you know, washing your hands if you're medical staff in between patients is the greatest way in which you can save lives. Uh, over the past hundred years, the greatest greatest benefit to uh, medical science is the whole washing bit you know i mean really you know and just keeping clean and like separate toilets from drinking water you know i mean that's like the major 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 thing um uh, and you know and now we look back at now and saying well you know what were they thinking of they're completely mad and and that's really the kind of stuff i'm doing here is you know they'd look back at us and say uh, you know what they they used to they used to get um you know, uh, they used to have, you know, cars with a huge engine in it. And then they'd see how fast they could go, how far they could go in like a quarter of a mile. Uh, and, and and that was it, was it? And they go, well, yeah. And they go, well, why do they do that? And you go, well, I don't know. And they say, well, we do slug racing. It's it's much more fun, you know, and it's something your your, your ancestors can enjoy, you know. And, and I think that there is, yes, it is absurd. But so much we do in our lives now is utterly, utterly absurd. I mean, it's enjoyable. I mean, drag racing is fun. You know, I, I do like going to it. Um, you're jumping out of airplanes. I d- personally, I don't do it, but I can see the fun of it. But it is absurd. You know, why would you get in an airplane, right, climb to 18,000 feet, leap out, you know, and then have this sort of silken um, canopy above you? Yes, it's fantastically good fun. Oh, I mean, you know, the rush must be absolutely fantastic. But it is absurd. It really is mad, mad, mad. And, and I think that's that's kind of what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything. It, it's, there's nothing really that you can't think up that that couldn't be seen as 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 kind of a possible, you know, in the future. Um, I mentioned unicycle hockey, actually, in this, which it really is, it happens. Uh, there is unicycle hockey, hockey, so I was quite pleased to put that in. One of the things that you talk about, uh, and I and I love this, is is you you use these uh, kind of uh, epigrams mm. um, to also advance the plot. So talk about going back mm. and forth and deciding what becomes part of the epigrams for the chapter, and and, and what what gets actually put into the story, and, mm. and how you pull those pieces out and use them for dramatic effect. Because there's a great epigram about. Uh, where all children are to attend, to attend school until 16 years of age, or they know everything, whatever comes sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea of going to school and you can learn everything, you know. And then, uh, in fact, if you've learned everything by 14, you might as well just go home. 
you know, finish out and not go to school again, which I think is a great idea. Um, I think there was some there's some point in the book about um, how so everybody could know everything. You just reduce the number of facts, and and that makes sense really if you want everybody to be able to know everything and then it'd be fair if everyone knew everything because there's only a limited number of facts and everyone would know everything that everyone else knew you know and then you wouldn't have any specialists or you know bores like that or experts because everybody would know everything which is a nice idea um but the the those little yeah those little sort of um epigrams well i mean part of it is um i was originally not going to have them um but traditionally i've always had them in all my books um and they've always been they've always been there and it's become a sort of bit of a bit of a trademark um so I, I, I was sort of th- thinking, you know, what should I do? And then I thought, well, it's got to be from the rule book. Um, so I just add, added these rules. Some of them relate to, some of them relate to the, the, the chapters in which they're happening. Others don't relate to anything at all. Uh, and some just are just silly and absurd. I think there's one about, you know, there's, there should be no staring at the sun, whatever the reason. Um, and I just think that's a nice stupid joke because, you know, well, what could a reason could there be, you know? I've got a really good reason, sir. Yeah, what is it? Uh, no, that's not good enough, you know? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, why not? I think it's something about banjos not being practiced after 4 a.m. or something like that. You know, real good sort of sensible stuff. Now, um, tell us about uh, the riffraff because there's mm. there were... There's more than just the colortocracy out there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, well, there's a very big. It's a very big country, um, and the the villages do seem very small, and it's actually quite seem quite paranoid, even though the place is um, not paranoid. Perhaps um, uh, it does, although it's a very big, expansive countryside. And when Eddie is traveling between villages, you know, there is just like nothing out there. It's completely empty, and it's just wild, and there's just these animals and everything. So it's a very big country with apparently very smooth, small amount of people living in it and I thought well with all that extra land that they would have to support another form of uh, uh, of human life um, who were entirely separate to this the, the colortocracy um, so I, I thought well I'll, I'll have them there but we won't sort of we will perhaps we'll see one once and uh, and they're uh, they're an interest they're, they're of huge interest to the people within the the colortocracy um, because you you're you're actually allowed to gossip about them and make up stories uh, and and discuss them in a way that's perhaps more free than anything else you you can discuss. Although it does seem to be as though um, ev- everyone promotes a very negative view of the riffraff. Nobody actually knows anything about them at all. Um, and when we finally do meet the riffraff, they're they're, they're absolutely fine, you know, and just sort of living out their lives quite happily. Um, but uh, but again, you know, in future in future novels, we can we can bring the riffraff in more. But um, it's only it's only the colortocracy that called them the riffraff. Now, one thing a hallmark about uh, dystopian fiction is the way it handles sexuality, mm. and you have a very interesting uh, means of handling handling sexuality in this novel, uh, and, and it ties in with your sense of romance. So, mm. talk about the tension that you create between the sense of romance and you know the attractions of the characters. And we love these winning, mm. winning characters, mm. and we want these people to be together. And we know. You know, from the from the get go, that they should be together. Mm. But you, you talk about uh, creating the tension between that romance and the the kind of stratified sexuality in in the novel. Yeah, there's uh, again, I suppose, there's a bit of a sort of ooh kind of ee, ee kind of uh, section. Of it. I mean, it it would seem to me. I mean, there is uh, that um, that there there is a, there's a sort of a form of prostitution which still. Is is seems to be more morally acceptable in this uh, in this world, which is kind of kind of weird and a bit strange. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's th- they're very very big on marriage in this in this world, and obviously you know they do want to you know get together and everything. But there are there there does seem to be very very different uh, morals about um, sexuality and everything else, um, and what you can do and what you can't, and. And I, I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, humans are fascinating creatures, uh, as as far as I'm concerned. Um, and because we are essentially here to procreate, it would seem daft not to have um, s- some some really to touch on that ca- on that aspect of the human animal in writing a book about uh, you know a future dystopia. You know, it have to be there. I mean, in 1984, it was you know it's a huge part of this this the book. You know, it's this like this. A, you know, wonderful sort of forbidden 
uh, liaison that he has. Um, and, and I think that was kind of very strong. Um, but it was also creating this kind of notion of, you know, of what was out there and what wasn't and, and, and how attainable uh, Jane Grey would have been uh, to him. And obviously not, but there is a possibility if they were married then that would be, you know, very, very interesting. So, so there's, I think, a lot of tension there. And, and certainly, I mean, that in, in the, well, and actually, no, I can't talk about that because it would give away some of the, the end of the book. But, um, but certainly in future books, there is, a, there is a, you know, some really good sort of uh, ways we can, we can generate tension within, the, uh, within the, the drama. Kind of going back to what I was saying about creating this new sort of concept of a drama by, by, um, by very subtly changing the rules of social discourse you can create entirely new concepts of of drama and i think it's just one of those sort of aspects that i was playing with um but it, it is important to all of us you know and um and it's not gratuitous i i you know i don't feel at all but i think there are things that you can look at and, and discuss and uh, uh, and talk about without it becoming sort of you know too avert shall we say now um a- as a dystopian novel um, there's uh, traditionally uh, dystopias are, are meant to warn us about something, mm. a- yeah. and and I'm curious um, when you st- started writing this novel, did you know what you were going to warn us about, and do you know now? <laughs> oh God, wow, what a question! Um, um, uh, I'm no, I'm not really sure. I mean, I I, sp- I I wouldn't really want to fall too much into a hole with that question because then it 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 kind of takes the book away from just being entertaining and then uh, being preachy or something. And I'd hate to be the sort of author who would be trying to say anything to anybody. Um, but but I think it's um, if if there's any sort of you know sort of um, message or you know warning or something you can take for it, it it's really question everything. Uh, and especially uh, that which is told to you by people in in position, um, but also question um, question things that happen in your question th- things that happen in in your life and why we should be doing things. There are so many things in Eddie's world that they just do them without without blithely accepting why they do, but no one seems to question it. Um, and it's in, it's probably the the incuriosity in this this colotocracy that I think is probably the most dangerous um, aspect of their lives. And it's I think it's very slowly killing them off because there is no one there who's willing to say, excuse me, why don't we do so and so and so and so? And, and I think that's very important. Uh, and I think, you know, as we perhaps, you know, in the sort of Western world, we find ourselves, you know, more and more sated, um, the less likely are we to say, now, hang on a sec. Um, perhaps we should be doing this another way. You know, uh, society has a huge inertia to it, you know, and we get into habits and we stay in habits and we can't shift those habits. And it, and it takes someone very special indeed to be able to say, you know, I think we're going to have to reverse this rather bizarre thing we've been doing all these years uh, uh, because actually it's not really that such a good idea after all. Um, so I think it's, it's really us question everything and be curious, be very curious. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, uh, I think that's good life advice, actually. Be curious. Be very curious. You know, and I'm a terrible one for that. You know, people, you know, they, they give me, they, they say, oh, did you know that seven out of ten, blah, 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 blah. And I go, really? Where, where, where does that come from? And they go, oh, well, I read it. Well, where do you read it? You know, and all that. And I go, oh, for God's sake, Jasper, you know, stop being a you know, hard ass about this. And I'm going, no, it's important. You know, if people give you these figures, you know, you should say, well, you have to back them up somehow. Um, so I'm a, I'm a terrible one like that, but it, it's it's good to be curious, especially especially from people in uh, authority, you know, especially people in authority. And, and your main character, of course, forms the Question Club. He does, he does the Question Club, and uh, and he's he's you know almost um, he's almost taken to task for it because he he starts the Question Club, and this is a very suspicious thing for him to do. Um, as he, I think he asks Mr. Turquoise, um, the the blue prefect, who's um, who's in charge of sort of glee and clubs. There's a, there's a lot of clubs and hobbies. It's a bit like being at school, actually. This 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 the colorocracy. It, it's you know after uh, you've got to have a hobby, uh, or at least a minimum of one hobby. But uh, ideally, I think they'd like you to have three. Um, you know, to to really keep you from sort of your 
mine from idleness. You know, far better to collect stamps and try and figure out a way to overthrow the uh, the society. Um, yeah, and he asked to start a question club, and um, and they do try and dissuade him. You know, and and they say, well, there's the chroma, the what they call it, the, you got the chromagentia meeting, because the chromagentia is like the sort of higher levels of, of colors you know they have a meeting and he said no no i want to i want a club where everyone can ask questions he go what sort of questions all the questions have been answered you know what why would you want to ask questions there's nothing to be answered everything that has been the only question that you that you possibly need to answering is why are you wasting your time your time and mine asking me to start you know a question club um and and it's it's quite a nice little chapter actually because he he starts saying well you know why why are there no spoons you know and all these sort of big questions that that um, that everyone really ponders of in in the book, so suddenly you start coming out, and you realise I think in that sort of little little exchange between Turquoise and, and and Eddie, that if you were to simply start asking questions, the whole thing would unravel very very quickly, but but no one no one does because they don't want to. I've been speaking with Jasper Ford. His new book is Shades of Grey: The Road to High Saffron. Thank you for joining me, Jasper. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.